Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Hello there, it's six o'clock. I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. And we've seen a first round of talks between the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine. Gotta say, unfortunately, it's failed to make any progress on a ceasefire, meaning the conflict, the war continues. What is it going to take for this war to end? And Russian oligarchs have seen their UK assets frozen, including, of course, the very high-profile case of Chelsea Football Club. Is all this going to make a difference, do you think? And get this, there's a growing number of children starting school in nappies. You heard me right, in nappies, starting school. Not only are they in nappies, some of them, they're unable to hold a pencil, unable to pay attention or even to feed themselves. What on earth is going on? And speaking of what on earth is going on, why is it seemingly so difficult for so many people to say what a woman is? We'll have all of that to come. Well, keep me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, we've got Ben Habib, who is the CEO of First Property Group and a former Brexit Party MEP. We've got Kevin Rooney, teacher and author, and Ellie Mayo Hagen, who's the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. And you know the drill on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well and your thoughts. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. And of course, you all know by now, I'm sure, uh, that we are on YouTube. You can subscribe there. You can watch live. Uh, or you can catch up from all the best bits of the channel. You might be watching there already. Uh, if you are, good evening to you. Uh, and I always forget to mention, by the way, but do you know we're on the radio? Yes, we are. You can uh, listen to us on DAB+. Plus. So if you're sitting there thinking, do I go out or do I stay in or what do I do? Well, guess what? You can do both. You can watch GB News at home or listen in your car. We're good to you, aren't we? What can I say? Anyway, let's get into the first top story, shall we? A first round of talks between the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine has failed to yield progress on a ceasefire, Ukraine says. Speaking after the meeting in Turkey, Dmitry Kaleb said that the demands of his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, had basically amounted to a surrender. Lavrov, meanwhile, said that what he calls his country's military operation was going to plan. The talks come after Russia was accused of bombing a children's hospital, of course, which Ukraine said was a war crime. So I'm pondering tonight, what do you think it's going to take to bring this war to an end? Ben Habib. Well, it's very interesting. The war's not going well for Vladimir Putin. You know, I, I'm absolutely certain that he thought he could go through Ukraine as a, you know, as a dose of salt, just go a blitzkrieg, take Ukraine, park his armies on the eastern flank of NATO. And what he encountered was a very strong resistance from the Ukrainian people, which continues. And at the same time, even though I, I was suspect of them to start with, actually these sanctions that we've imposed on Russia have bitten. And one of the sanctions which we, we haven't mentioned uh, much in the media um, and hasn't got much attention, but I think is the salient, most important sanction, was the sanctioning of their central bank, which effectively froze 
$540 billion worth of uh, foreign assets that the Russian Central Bank held. And it wasn't therefore able to support its currency. So what you've got is a ruble that's collaped, mm. economic um, Armageddon, if you like. Uh, that, that, that's probably a bit hyperbolic, but, you know, massive economic implications for Russia. At the same time, is it getting bogged down in Ukraine? And you can see Vladimir Putin beginning to weaken on the international stage. If you cast your mind back a month, his demands were that actually NATO withdraw its forces from all NATO countries that joined after 97, which effectively would have taken NATO back to where it was before the Iron Curtain came down. Now his demand, uh, now his demand is merely to have a corridor down the eastern, southeastern flank of Ukraine, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, as independent nations, recognition from Ukraine that Crimea is Russian and that Ukraine will constitutionally commit itself to remaining independent. Well, that is a very big climb down for Vladimir Putin. So I think... I think we're beginning to see at least the end of the frightening part of the war as far as the West is concerned. I think the Ukrainian people still have a massive struggle ahead of them, and he's not going to withdraw his troops in a hurry. But this idea that he was going to come through Ukraine quickly, park his tanks on the eastern flank of NATO, and threaten us directly, I think that threat's gone, and he is now on his back foot. Kevin? I'm, I'm not sure it's the sanctions, Ben. Maybe in the medium to long term, that might be the case. But I think that I'm, I'm reminded of Clausewitz and that famous saying about the extension of politics being war. And I think that this has been played out in the battlefield. And I think the key difference at the moment is that the resistance of the Ukrainian people is far and above what Putin expected. And that's doing the business at this point in time. Now, we don't know how it's going to play out in the next couple of weeks. But what I would say... The criteria and the conditions for peace talks are up to the Ukrainian people and their elected leader, Zelensky. It's not for NATO generals, it's not for British politicians. And what we must be careful of when we're talking about these um, proposed peace talks and discussions is that Ukraine doesn't become a proxy for a battle between Britain or NATO and Russia. Ali? Well, I really hope that uh, Ben's right, but I suppose my concern is that it took six years for the US um, and its allies to declare uh, mission accomplished in Iraq um, after the first invasion. So I worry that we might be in this for quite a long time. Um, and I think really uh, what we need to do is to, to keep sanctioning Russia, to make it economically and politically impossible for Putin to continue. But I suppose um, I feel some sense of caution and concern about declaring that it will be over too soon because I think it could drag out for a very long time. Yeah, I fear that you might be right on some of that. Uh, defence and security analysts have told GB News, by the way, that a Russian private military company sanctioned by the West and linked to allegations of war crimes is, I quote, almost certainly on the ground and involved in fighting in Ukraine. Uh, the Wagner Group, which the Kremlin denies even exists, is a secretive organisation made up of more than 5,000 mainly former members of the Russian military. Well, our security editor, Mark White, examines uh, the background of this group. A shadowy organisation gathering hard facts on the activities of the Wagner Group is far from easy. But they are, we've been told, active in Ukraine, likely involved in highly dubious activities. 
However, as Moscow doesn't even acknowledge their existence, Vladimir Putin has plausible deniability of whatever they're up to. The founder and leader of the group is a sinister, shaven-headed fellow by the name of Dmitry Utkin, a former senior officer in Russia's Spetsnaz Special Forces. Indeed, the Wagner name, we're told, is derived from his Spetsnaz codename, which apparently reflects his appreciation of the Third Reich and Hitler's favorite composer. Under Russian law, private military companies are illegal, publicly at least. To call them a company would be a stretch, as there are no visible traces of this company existing. However, it has been deemed as a, an asset of plausible deniability by the Kremlin to be utilized for various different conflicts around the world. And they've been active not only in Central Africa, Venezuela, Syria, but also other parts of the world where it may be, again, for various reasons, not pragmatic for the Russian government to utilize their own state troops. It was during deployments here in Syria and Central Africa several years ago that Wagner Group mercenaries were linked to allegations of war crimes, including torture, rape and murder. The wider group is now believed to be under the ownership of Yevgeny Prigozhin, a former criminal and billionaire restaurant owner nicknamed Putin Chef. He's one of a number of Russian elites facing Western sanctions. The West does, of course, also employ the services of private military contractors, groups like the US company Blackwater. Some of their employees were convicted and later pardoned in the killing of a number of Iraqi civilians in 2007. But Western contractors are at least regulated and there's official oversight of their activities unlike their Russian counterparts. We've used private security companies to guard diplomats. We use them in Iraq, we the West that is, use them in Iraq, but mostly for non-military operations. The ones we're talking about here, that doesn't apply to. They're, they're a different breed, if you like, and they're operating under different, different conditions. Whether they're accountable to the local military commanders on the ground, or whether they're working back to some organization uh, in Moscow or elsewhere, I, I honestly don't know. But the reality is that there's no way are they accountable in the same way that we in the West make our private co companies accountable. So are Wagner Group mercenaries now actively hunting Ukraine's leadership, including President Zelensky? Some with knowledge of their activities certainly believe so. From what we understand in Ukraine right now, there is a kill team that are undertaking potential assassinations against key persons, including obviously Zelensky, uh, that are very vocal in the charge for both morale for Ukrainian people, but also for the international community. Whether their mission actually includes a leadership assassination command, defense and security analysts have told us they will certainly be involved in sabotage, false flag operations, and the likely interrogation and torture of captured Ukrainians, the kind of dirty jobs Vladimir Putin might want to publicly distance himself from. Interesting stuff from Mark White there. Um, I want to expand a little bit on the conversations that we're just having about sanctions, because you may have noticed uh, seven further Russian individuals have been sanctioned by the government today, including, of course, the high-profile Chelsea football club owner, Roman Abramovich. 
Ben Habib, um, there's been much conversation about what to do when it comes to oligarchs. Are we doing enough? Should we be doing more? Uh, what are your, what's your thoughts on this kind of sanctioning uh, Russian oligarchs? Well, we've had a very uneasy, um, to put it politely, relationship with these oligarchs, many of whom have made their money in rather dubious ways. And, you know, we have provided them a sanctuary for their money in the United Kingdom, invited them in, and the Tory party has been a recipient, I think, of... Um, they may deny it, but I think they have been a recipient, you know, of their largesse. But the issue really, as far as the Ukrainian-Russian uh, situation is concerned, I think is uh, the, the sanctions against the oligarchs is ki kind of irrelevant. What we need to be focusing, is the, focusing on is the Russian state. So I mentioned again the central bank, the freezing of the central mm -hmm. bank assets. That's critical because it, it makes it impossible for Russia to protect its currency if it can't sell hard assets in order to bolster the ruble. And then the other aspect of sanctions, which actually we've been very timid in applying, is cutting off Russian oil and gas. We're still buying, the West is collectively still buying about a billion dollars worth of oil and gas every day from Russia. The US did come out yesterday saying that they were going to cut them off. The UK is going to try and do it by the end of this year. The EU was incredibly timid on it. And so what's happening here, I'm just going to, I'll come back to oligarchs in a second, but What's happening here is an economic stranglehold that we're putting on rather slowly uh, 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 around Russia's neck, though the central bank action was terrific. And what Russia is trying to do at the moment is pivot away from trading with the West and realign itself with new trading partners, most notably, obviously, China, mm -hmm. uh, w which is a country that's you know, hugely hungry for natural resources. And there's going to be blowback with sanctions because... As we tighten the screw on Russia and turn off our access to gas and oil, we ourselves are going to suffer. Indeed. And it's not just food, it's not just oil and gas, it's all the implications that that has for our industry, for, our, for, for fertilizers, for our, our, our food, therefore, and so on and so on. So there's going to be a big economic knockback for the West, which is why I think we've been so reluctant to turn off uh, the, their oil and gas. But I do think ultimately, that the oligarch sanctions are really more for show than dough. Um, their money's here. We're not actually stealing anything away from Putin by sanctioning the oligarchs. We're not doing any damage to his state. Ellie May, um, do you think that these uh, sanctions to the oligarchs are relevant or not? I do. I, I think um, it does damage Putin in the sense that these are people who are very powerful and quite close to him. Um, but I think uh, I agree with Keir Starmer that we're not going hard enough or fast enough. And I think the other thing that's really important to note is that we've really turned Britain, especially London, into a playground for the super rich of the world and the oligarchs of the world. And honestly, people who have a lot of dirty money that they want to hide, that we have allowed London to become a playground where those people can do that. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. 10% of the properties in Westminster are offshore companies. There was a documentary a few years ago called From Russia with, with Cash, where a couple of Russian activists posed as people with very dodgy finances and were able to just buy property with no questions asked. Uh, Lavrov, who we just talked about earlier, who was um, uh, refusing to negotiate with, uh, with Ukraine, his stepdaughter owns a £4.4 million property in Kensington. So this is something that's been going on for a long time in this country. And we've been turning a blind eye to it for too long. 
So I hope now we actually take proper action, we go after all of the Russian oligarchs, and we change the way that we work as a country so that people like that can't hide their money here anymore or can't just buy property here and live here. Kevin? I think dirty money and washing money through the city of London has been on for years from every nationality across the world. What I want to say is if any of these oligarchs are complicit with Putin in any shape, form or fashion uh, in relation to the invasion of Ukraine, let's smash them, let's do them. But I have a couple of questions. I, this is why I'm concerned about this. Number one, what is the evidence against these oligarchs? Can we, the dual public, have a bit of transparency, a bit of open debate, a bit of critical debate? Can we shine a light on this? Because so far I haven't seen it. The second thing is, do we believe in the concept of innocent until proven guilty? Or is that went out the window in this hysteria against Russia at the moment? And thirdly, if it's the case that they're so guilty, why have they been able to operate with impunity up until now? It seems to me that the sanctions against these rich Russian people are more about virtue signaling from Boris Johnston and politicians in Parliament and window dressing. So I'm not defending the Russian oligarchs as such, but what I am going to tell you, I'm not prepared to condemn them till I see the evidence. Can we have the evidence? Because there's a big whiff of Russiaphobia. There's a big whiff of anti-Russian hysteria. I'm afraid it's going to get worse unless we have a more honest, open, transparent, critical debate. Well, Ellie, I think uh, Kevin raises an interesting point there. One of the things that you said in your response a second ago was that you mentioned Keir Starmer saying that, you know, basically we should have been doing everything a lot faster. And I get this sense uh, at the moment that there is this real pressure from everyone everywhere to act, act quickly, act quickly, go fast, go deep, go hard, go, 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 go. And I kind of, part of me just wants to to breathe, to pause, to consider, to make sure, because the situation that we are in, and I'm sure we all understand the potential that this has got to go catastrophically wrong and the impact that that will have globally. And I worry a little bit that there is this intense pressure for everything to happen now, 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 criticism, why aren't you doing more, why aren't you going faster? And like you mentioned, Boris, and the speed at which is operated, I actually think that our government has acted you know, pretty harshly, fastly, and in a manner that actually um, I don't see how much room there is for criticism. If I think, for example, of SWIFT, so you'll know about the kind of the payment system, there were so many people calling for SWIFT to be cancelled. Boris Johnson was one of the people that was actually pushing for that. It was the Germans, for example, that were reluctant, shall I say, to go ahead with that. It was Boris that was pushing for that. And I'm just a little bit apprehensive that kind of all this haste is going to come back with unintended consequences if we're not careful. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think in terms of uh, moving fast with the oligarchs, in the EU, they've sort of already seized lots and lots of oligarchs' assets, whereas we've only seized seven oligarchs' assets. And actually, if you delay, what that allows people to do is to hide their money somewhere where you can't get it. So you have to move fast. And I think... You know, with war, you do have to move fast. Otherwise, you know, things happen outside of your control. And in terms of uh, are these people innocent or guilty, I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think actually it's a case of the fact that for many, many years, the city of London has become the tax haven of the world. It's become a place where the super rich can go without accountability. So 
what we should really be asking ourselves is, is that okay? Are we happy for our country to be used in that way? And I personally am not, and that's why I'd like to see a change. Well, uh, can I... The, the, sorry, you go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, you can't just dismiss, Ellie, um, well, the question of innocent or guilty is not that important, and say a lot of super-rich people have been coming to the City of London. The bottom line is, if these people are not guilty of anything, I defend them to the hilt. I defend them against the sanctions imposed on them. If they're guilty of something, fair enough. But let's have a transparent debate. We are not seeing the evidence... There's a complete lack of critical debate. And by the way, Michelle, you expressed it beautifully, far better than I could there. Let's just pause. Let's take stock. Let's weigh up exactly what's happening. And we will get into the law of unintended consequences. And it's a very slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, for I, example, I, yeah. can I just come back to that? So, for example, when I said that one in ten properties in Westminster are offshore companies, what that means is that the person who owns that is able to hide behind a very complex web of companies. There was an investigation a few years ago called the Panama Papers that found that, you know, in some cases, just one woman was attached to hundreds of companies in order to mask the real owners. And often this is linked to tax avoidance. And we know that in the UK, companies um, avoid, companies and individuals avoid up to 25 billion in tax. Now, you ask about innocent and guilty. They are innocent because all of that is legal. And what I'm saying is yeah. it should not be legal. It's wrong that it's legal but and I we need to change we, the law. Are we law. talking well, about the... you own a property G company, Ben Habib. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, property... By the way, the te what they could buy with cash 10 years ago is no longer allowed. You do have to check the validity and integrity of the money nowadays, uh, you know, when you enter into a property transaction. But, I mean, are we talking about the rights and wrongs of oligarchs parking their money in London, or are we talking about the geopolitical impact of sanctions on oligarchs? Because yep. they're two very separate yep. discussions. I think, I think they're, and they're linked discussions. No, they're not at all linked, because the geopolitical impact on Russia by sanctioning oligarchs in this country is close to nil. The, if you want to hit Russia hard, and we've hit them hard, you've got to sanction their central bank. That's £540 billion of foreign reserves, which I've mentioned. You've got to cut their, 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 you've got to cut off their oil exports and their gas. And you've got to neuter their ability to engage with the rest of the world economically. You don't do that by, by confiscating the assets of a few Russians in London. And I think Kevin makes a really powerful point, which is that we sit here in the West and we look across the East and we talk about the importance of law and order and how Putin doesn't recognise a law and order-based system um, and only recognises power, well, actually, we then have to apply those same principles to ourselves. You know, we can't say, well, there's law and order for some and not for others. And I was actually a bit dismayed with some of the sanctions uh, meted out to Chelsea today. I understand, perhaps, that Abramovich may not be allowed to sell Chelsea, but why stop Chelsea, the entity, from selling tickets? Why stop them from selling merchandise? These, this is a, effectively a British-based business that is being stopped from carrying out its legitimate uh, uh, economic activity because of something over which it has no influence, no control, and there'll be close to no geopolitical impact. So, I mean, I think it is all a bit daft. Do you? Um, well, what do you think? You've heard what the panel think. Uh, a mixture of views, got to say. I want to know yours. You can email me, gbviews at gbnews.com. Um, UK, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Uh, coming up a bit later in the show as well, uh, a poll found that 54% of four-year-olds were not classroom ready. Why is this, do you think? Uh, is it COVID? Are the parents to blame? Is there something else going on?
Hello there. Uh, welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. Just a quick reminder as to who my panel is, keeping me company until 7 o'clock. We've got Ben Habib, who's the CEO of First Property Group uh, and a former Brexit Party MEP, Kevin Rooney, who's a teacher and an author, and Ellie Mayo-Hagan, who's the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. Now, a topic that caught my eye today, a new survey of primary school teachers, basically um, is highlighting the number of children that are starting school without vital skills. And when I'm talking about vital skills, by the way, I'm talking about things like basic communication or the ability to hold a pencil or the fact that, you know, you're even out of nappies. Apparently, just 54% of this year's intake were classroom ready. Uh, I've got to say, there's a few reasons uh, being touted around for this. One of them is COVID, of course, saying that people didn't have much access to nurseries uh, in the run-up to primary school. Uh, also, people are suggesting that parents are spending too much time on electronic devices and failing to develop their children. But what do you make to all of this? Um, one of my viewers wrote in straight from the off, actually, to my show saying, Michelle, uh, when you judge, uh, when you do this topic, please, can I ask that you don't be too judgmental on all parents? She goes on to say that she's got uh, a non-verbal autistic child and she's tried really hard uh, getting all the help possible to get uh, her child ready for school. And, you know, their child isn't quite there yet, but it's through no fault of the parent. And I have to say, um, Noelle was your name, I've got deep sympathy uh, for that and it is incredibly hard being a parent I understand that uh, but if only 54% of the class is ready to be at school that does uh, raise alarm bells to me. Kevin, you're a teacher. What's your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by 54% being ready. I, I mean, in my experience, even though I'm a secondary school and sixth form teacher, uh, the young ones are, are barely ever ready when they walk into the classroom. Um, you know, I can remember like 30 years ago, the difficulty of the kids not being able to go to the toilet when they should have went to the toilet or even hanging their coats off and all that. So you got all, you got all that sort of aspect of the discussion. What I don't like about some of the comedy around this is about the kids not being toilet trained and the parents are factless and the parents are on these computers or whatever all day and ignoring the children. I mean, in my experience, I don't see that at all. Where I come from in the north of Ireland, Michelle, and I wouldn't be a fan of the DUP, but the, <laughs> D, but the DUP education minister, Michelle McElveen, for a play to her, she's just introduced a bill into Stormont in the north of Ireland, which is delaying for, by year the entry of kids into school. Um, because there's a legitimate and a, a serious point about young brains being immature in terms of their development. And I think, you know, see if you were getting into a serious discussion, you were wanting the best interest of the kids. I don't think it's a problem if we have a conversation about parents having the right to delay by year the entry age for their, for their kids into school, which is what's happening with the bill in the north of Ireland. And do you know that a huge amount of schools in Europe, their kids don't start school to six or seven? Well, you raise an interesting point, actually, um, because my uh, son was born very, very prematurely. And, of course, he's still very little, so he's not ready for school yet. But it, I already think, well, actually, hang about, what he was born so much earlier is pushed him legally into a premature school year. Anyway, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But I do often think about the prematurity in terms of the age at which a child is ready to start school. But um, Ellie Mayer, I do, nonetheless, I have to say, find it concerning that a child would start school in nappies. Well, I agree with what Kevin was saying about school should start later because, you know, famously, Finland has the best education system in the world and children there start school at seven. But I think one reason why Finland is really good at 
education and has really good results is because they understand that children are people that have lives outside of school and they try to make those lives better as well. And at class, we've been looking at people's lives in this country, working people's lives. And what we found is that over the years, since 2005, there's been a steady increase in job insecurity. So people are generally working um, part-time jobs. They're not getting the hours that they need. Their pay is getting lower and lower every year. So I would suggest that if parents are not teaching children what they need to learn before they go to school, I think that is maybe because the parents are not present because they're either at work or they're, they're very stressed out. And, you know, let's remember as well that the cost of childcare in this country is insane. You're telling me. You know, I, some of my friends are parents and they pay £100 a day and they still have to pay that even if they go on holiday or if they don't put their kid in nursery for whatever reason, otherwise they'll lose the place. I mean, that's a crazy amount of money that not many people can afford. So it's no wonder to me then that children are bearing the brunt of this and they're suffering. And I think it really needs a big change you know, in terms of how we manage society to make sure that children are looked after so that they have the best chance when they start school. Yeah, I think you're definitely on something with the cost of childcare. Um, I mean, I'm almost tempted to, I have to say, don't even get me started on that because uh, that was this is a whole new world to me and it is extortionate. But bringing it back, Ben Habib, to um, children's readiness for school, um, I, I personally do think that some, not all, some parents do just think that they can outsource quite fundamental elements of parenting to teachers. Yeah, and before I answer that, I just want to say I've got two children who were born in August, late August birthdays, and they therefore were very young for their year. And the biggest regret I have as a parent is sending them off to school at the age of three. So my advice to you, Michelle, three. as soon as they turned three, they went off to, you know, to kindergarten. My advice to you would be to hold on to your child for longer, you know, rather than sending them straight Joking, off. I help with pushing them out the door as quick as I can. <laughs> Just joking in case my baby's but, watching. Um, I mean, you know, parents have to take primary responsibility for their children. We've got to stop um, this belief that the nanny state can micromanage the way families, uh, you know, uh, the way families are organised and the way families dispense education amongst themselves and so on. You know, the state's got to step back. Parents have to take responsibility. And funny enough, I would have thought lockdowns is something that should have benefited children during these very early years because they would have had their parents at home be able to show them, uh, uh, you know... But the parents probably would have been working. And if you're trying to work, I mean, if you've got a, a relatively low-paid job, you're trying to work, you might not have a spare... You might not have the luxury of a spare room or even a spare corner to stick a desk in. So you're trying to manage your work with a little kid... You know, and as we all know, if you've got kids, kids want your attention. Yeah. That must have been incredibly difficult for families. But they would at least have been there to help their children, you know, get potty trained and that very early learning stuff that you need before you go off to kindergarten. <laughs> Michelle, can I say, see if you were to do a review of newspapers five years ago, 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years, I bet you'd find the same story. This is the type of moral panic that comes up all the time. That's not to say that there's not a few cases of kids aren't potty trained and there's not maybe a couple of factless parents out there, but the overwhelming majority of parents are, are decent, bring their kids up well. And I just don't recognise the article that we're talking about and the evidence is extremely flimsy. And, and you know... At the end of the day, by the way, it's not so much the age that a kid starts school that's important. It's the type of education they get there. 
But it's undoubtable as well to me that this whole lockdown situation will absolutely have had an impact on children. And I, I don't oh, like but to Michelle, me. you're right. But I, let me tell you what I was doing at uh, half three, up until half three, half two to half three. I was teaching year nines. Uh, 13, How old are they? Uh, 13, 14 um, uh, year olds. I love them, great class. But I have to say, see their attention span? Oh my God, it's so slow. It's so limited at the minute. You know, they just switch off. They're, they just kind of. Why? Why do you think that because is? Because of, without a shadow of a doubt, COVID. See, these are young people. There's people in secondary schools almost two years where they left the primary school during COVID, during lockdown. And, and part of the socialisation process, the discipline process, the intellectual academic development of young kids has been massively stunted by how long we close the schools. Now, we won't get into the debate about closing schools during COVID, which, you know, I'm very critical of, but it's absolutely without a doubt stunted their development. But my point is, we were talking about the young ones starting school at the age of four. I'm saying there's a problem right across the school range because mm -hmm. of COVID and the impact of that. Well, I will agree with you, actually, when it comes to the development of children. Um, my son was born in the pandemic and I have always refused point blank to be masked when it comes to social interactions with my child. See, when you try to take him to a, a baby group, you know, like you take people, you take them, don't you, to the baby groups, you make friends and whatever. None of that was available if you had a child when I had a child. Those groups were not operating. When they did start operating, it was I mean, I'm sure I'll get criticised for this, but I, I found it pathetic. I found it. I found the, the rules around these classes so pathetic and counterproductive to my child's development that I just didn't do it. Because if you were allowed to go, there was only allowed to have so many people. You all had to have these masks on your face, and you're sitting there. I'm not going to do a music class with my kid with my face concealed, trying to develop my child. That's not developing my child. That's yeah. just making a bizarre situation for my child. So I just refuse to do that. Michelle, I should add, a lot of my students are watching tonight. I was leaving the class. I'm rushing into centre London. What oh, hello. For? I said, um, news. Students. So students, you're good people. Your attention span dips occasionally, <laughs> but you're brilliant <laughs> overall. OK, I love you. Thank well, you. I mean, you're a better man than me, Kevin, I think, because my, you know, my idea of hell, quite frankly, would be trying to get a, a handle on a room full of teenagers. It must that be extraordinarily idea, hard. I remember doing a talk once to a group of school kids and they were all messing around and not paying attention. And I found it infuriating and I said to myself, never again. Uh, but Ellie, there is undoubtedly, isn't there, something about attention spans and all the rest of it uh, with children being impacted, should I say, at the moment? Yeah, there is. And I think in general, you know, in life, I think uh, we spend too much time staring at screens and I think it's not very good for us. And I would like us to, you know, reorganise the way that we live and work so that we can actually do other things other than stare at a screen. I mean, during lockdown, you know, there was days when I would get up, I would do a full day of work and then in the evening, you know, you would go on Zoom to speak to friends. So you'd end up be, being on a screen for like 13 hours in a day. Mm. It's just exhausting. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think, I mean, you know better than me, you're a teacher, but it definitely sounds right what you're saying about that, having, that affecting people's attention span. Well, uh, Diane says, uh, Michelle, well, holding a pencil for kids is something that rarely happens now because all they ever hold is the TV or a tablet. Um, Tessa, uh, Teresa, sorry, says, my mum worked as a nurse full-time and on the fields picking seasonal work and she always uh, found the time still to teach us well because she was bothered. And Teresa says she thinks the problem is a lot of parents cannot be bothered. 
Uh, Liz, you make a good point with this one, Liz. You say if parents had to wash your nappies, uh, then they sh would soon be toilet trained. I have to say, I remember. <laughs> yes. I remember those terry toweling nappies. Um, do you remember all those, anyone? I mean, they were absolutely like origami. But you're quite right. I think you're on something there, Liz. If you did have to do all the washing, you might think twice about uh, speeding up the time frame at which your kids get out of them. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm pondering something. Why is it so hard for some people to define the word woman? We'll have that and more after the break. Hello there, I'm Michelle Jubri, this is Jubes and Co, and you are watching my panel as well, which is Ben Habib, who's the CEO of First Property Group and former Brexit Party MEP, Kevin Rooney, who's a teacher and author, and Ellie Mayer-Hagan, who's the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. I was just talking about childcare there, and Brenda has emailed in saying, Michelle, uh, you should be asking the question about where have all the thousands of children gone who didn't even return to school? Brenda, you make a very good point, and you are not wrong. There are indeed thousands and thousands of children that didn't return. What did happen to them? If you've got a child that you didn't send back to school, why not? Get in touch. Tell me why. I'm intrigued to know the answer. Uh, but for now, let's talk about something. Uh, there should be a simpler question to answer than the one I've just posed. What is a woman? Hmm? And why, am I, why on earth am I asking this question? Well, I'm asking this question because it seems to some quite a difficult question to answer. Labour uh, MPs, for example, Yvette Cooper and Annalise Dodds, uh, who is the Shadow Minister for Women, made the headlines this week after struggling to define what a woman is, uh, leading to the author, J.K. Rowling, to joke that the Labour, sorry, Labour Party would rename International Women's Day <laughs> We Who Must Not Be Named Day. Uh, it's not the first time, of course, that the Labour Party has been asking itself this question. Last year, Keir Starmer said that claiming only women had cervixes was something that shouldn't be said. That was in response to MP Rosie Duffield's claim that they should be protected spaces for women that are not open to those who are biologically male. Very peculiar, if you ask me. Uh, Ellie Mayo Hagen, your thoughts? Well, I don't think any of us really know what makes a woman. You know, we, we don't really know whether it's a case of biology or whether it's a case of what's going on in your brain or whether it's the way that it's the environment that you live in. We don't know the answer to those questions. And I don't think it really matters that much. You know, so, for example, in this country, we didn't need to know why people are gay in order to say that introducing equal marriage was the right thing to do. And I don't think we need to know why some people are women and some people are men in order to treat all people with respect. And I think, so I think in terms of transgender people, which is what this argument is actually about, I think transgender people, you know, have existed as long as all people have existed and they should be treated with respect and accepted for who they are. I think we'd all want that for ourselves, and I think that's what we should give to other people. Ellie Mayer, there is uh, so much uh, I could come back to you on that. Uh, but Ben Habib... Well, I, I'm very simplistic on this. I've, ha I've, I've never had any trouble recognising what is a woman. Um, I, How do I've you gone, know? I've gone, well, I've gone happily through my life. Well, I haven't made any mistakes, not yet, anyway. How do you know? <laughs> well, you would, I... would, if, you, if you met yeah. someone... And you talk to her like she's a woman. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that what you mean by that is that you can tell who is transgender and who isn't. No, I'm not. But I'm no. saying I don't think that's no, the I, case. No, I, I wasn't saying that. I can tell... So you're just taking people as you find them, which I think is the right thing to do, which yeah. is what I'm saying. Rather than saying, you can be a woman, you shouldn't be a woman, actually just take people as you find them and accept them for who they are. I think that's the lesson here. 
Yeah. The other lesson before I move on, I want to go back to Ukraine. I think, I hope that if Ukraine and what's going on there teaches us anything, is that we've got to stop this incessant internal navel-gazing in the West over subjects which actually don't have any bearing on the uh, uh, prosperity and um, lifestyle of 99.9% of the population. You know, we fret over these minority issues to the point where the West is all consumed and not looking actually at the important things that are needed to protect its integrity and for the, uh, you know, for the, for, for the electorate to go forward comfortably and with prosperity. And we've got, to, you know, we've got to get back to basics. Back to basics. Kevin? I think I have a lot of empathy and understanding and respect for people who feel they're trapped in a particular body and want to transition to another sex. But I, but I have to say, I find this a fairly straightforward discussion as well. I'm sorry if I've been crude, but I consider someone with a penis a man and someone with a womb or a vagina a woman. Now, I have, over the years, the last few years, had students, sixth form students, trapped, felt trapped in a particular body and wanted to transition. And I think we should give them every help and support. I absolutely do. But what I think is a real problem here is that People within academia in particular, the political hierarchies like these Labour Party women, they're wandering off into the swamp or the reeds of identity politics. And the truth of the matter is, it doesn't make sense to a huge swathe, the vast majority of society. And what they're effectively trying to do is culturally engineer and upend our social norms. And that is a political project that those people are engaged in. And I think it's right that they're challenged. Now, by challenging those people in the Labour Party, like these women you mentioned, and very much on the side of J.K. Rowling, that doesn't mean that we don't have respect or afford dignity to those people who feel trapped in a particular body and want to transition. Yeah, Ellie, I mean, you say, you started this by saying that you don't really think that anyone can define what a woman is. I mean, Kevin's just given you one basic example. A man has a penis, a woman has a vagina. Do you, you don't dispute that? Well, that's clear, well, that's clearly, is clearly more complicated than that, isn't it? Because if, if it was the, if that was the case, then transgender people wouldn't exist, but they do. So obviously it is more complicated than that because if, the, if having a vagina is what makes you a woman, then transgender men wouldn't exist, but they do. So that just doesn't, so it's obviously more complicated than that. But like I say, it doesn't matter. What matters is that people are treated, respect for, treated with respect for who they are. And that means accepting them for who they are. And it means that if they say, I'm a woman and I need to live as a woman in order to be happy, we say, okay then, because they're not doing anything wrong. They're not causing any harm. They just want to get on with their lives. And I don't understand why that is such a problem. Do you want to come back, Kevin? Well, you know, I, I, I do want to reiterate that I think we have to afford people, uh, you know, their, their dignity and we, we, we need to value the worth of those individuals. But it does have real-life consequences. I mean, for example, we in, as a society have basically accepted the notion that women should have certain safe spaces. And we, we have accepted the notion that there's, such, there's women's prisons and there's men's prisons. We have a thing called the Olympic Games, and there are certain rules and categories for entering those sports. And things like that have real repercussions. And so what I'm trying to say, as much as we want to respect people, 
who feel themselves trapped in a body and want to transition to another, we have to accept that there are real life consequences to them and not shy away from that. I'm all for the debate, LMA, 100%. And I really don't like when the debate gets polarized in the culture war. I cannot stand that. We must be able and free and open and have enough tolerance in our society to allow people to have a debate about this coming from different positions. You know what? I agree with you about uh not wanting this to become a culture war, but I think when we start talking about women in sports and women's prisons, I think actually you do start getting into that because if there was any evidence that women in prison were under threat by transgender people or that women in sports were under threat from transgender people, I think what you'd see is hundreds and hundreds of cases of women actually being under threat by transgender people. But I bet no one on this panel can give a single example of a woman being harmed by a transgender person in a prison or in sport. There are no transgender women athletes in the Olympics. So basically what we're talking about here are arguments about things that are not happening. And I think the purpose of those arguments is to scare people, is to kind of make people think of extreme examples in order to avoid what should be basic for us all, which is well, treat people with respect and let people be equal. I'll tell you what I think. We're almost out of time. I'll tell you what I think. Um, I think when you talk about basics, to me, it's very simple. There are biological basics that, for some reason, there is a segment of society that seem determined to deny, to undermine and to try and ignore. Why? So that other people are not offended. Um, I but transgender you. people have existed for centuries. It's and not, no it's one's not denying a new thing. that, Ellie. But I don't understand why it's either if you do, you know, it's biological sex, and if you deny biological sex, then you are offensive to people. Everyone should be respected. Who, who you are is, you know, you being should be respected. Behold. But what should also be respected, in my <laughs> humble opinion, is biological sex. Now, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. You can carry on the conversation. I'm sure we will be in just a moment. You can email gbviews at uh, gbnews.uk with your views. Tweet gbnews at Michelle Jubes. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a nice evening. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.